0: Well, when you came in a while ago, you should have gotten a bookmark, and on that bookmark is the Apostles' Creed. If you did not get one, there will be, uh, it looks exactly like this, and so if you did not get one, you can get one when you leave, or if you have, uh, you know, another Bible that you want to use it in a bookmark, you know, we'll... We have a limited supply, but we'll print up another limited supply if we need to. Um, but if you were not here last week, I, I don't do this a whole lot, but if you were not here last week, I, go back, go online, and um, and and listen to the message because it's going to um, set the framework for where we're going. I, I shared last week, and, and for many of you that grew up, in Baptist churches, Baptists historically have not been a creedal people. We've been a people of the book. And I spent time laboring over that last week to let you know that the the authority is not in the creed. The authority in is in the scriptures, and we're going to use the creed as a guideline to help us because we live in a day of ignorance as to what we really believe as followers of Jesus Christ. So that's what it's taken us uh, to. And today, we're going to deal with the first line there. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and of earth. And remember that I uh, said last week when you we talk about believe and creeds, this is a structure. What you believe is going to dictate in how you live your life. So we're, we're looking at this. And today we're talking about God, the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and of earth. When I say God, what image comes into your mind? Just That's a rhetorical question, but I want you to think about what image comes up into your mind. Uh, some people think of a distant creator who is now a spectator just watching us play it out here on earth. Some people see God as an overbearing tyrant who is waiting for you to make a mistake and just take his thumb and rub your face in it. I mean, he's given us all these laws, right? And so he's just waiting for us to make a mistake. Some people see God as a taskmaster who's, okay, I've got another one. I'm going to wear them out for for my kingdom's sake. But some people see God as a grandfather who is gentle and wanting to give you gifts and make no demands of you. You know, he's kind of that old softy kind of guy. Uh, some people believe God is unapproachable and he creates fear because he is so massive and, and you cannot draw near. Others see God as, as he's up there in heaven wringing his hands in anxiety because of the world is so screwed up and there's the wars and rumors of wars and diseases and and uh, earthquakes and global warming and everything as God is wringing his hands up in heaven thinking, oh no, they're going to screw it up and uh, this is what he's going to do. And then some people think of God as a gentle, kindly old man and his his rocking chair, and he's just lovable and squeezable, and he's the man upstairs, and that's kind of the way they see him. And, in fact, in Moses dealt with this back in Exodus. You don't have to look this passage up, but I want to just use it as a bridge. Moses, after he met with God, let my people go. He comes back down. He tells Aaron what's going on, and Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh. And this is what happened. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. He's asking the question that most of us ask because we always wonder. Who is this Lord that I should obey His voice? Who is He that I should obey him at all? Pharaoh asked that question that seven billion people asked that question. But in America today, we, we think even though we're drifting in to post-Christian modernism and as a country, Gallup has done polls that over 80% of Americans still adhere to that there's a God. Now, what that God is, who that God is, may differ. may be multiple gods, but over 80% still believe that there is a God. Warren Wiersbe said this, he says, What we think about God and our relationship to him determines what we think about everything else that makes up our busy world. Other people, the universe, God's word, God's will, sin, faith, and obedience. Wrong ideas about God will ultimately lead to wrong ideas about who we are and what we should do. And this leads to a wrong life on the wrong path toward the wrong destiny. Warren Wiersbe said, basically translated, how you see God is going to dictate into how you see everything else in our world. And so people, even though over 80% of people might adhere to a God, the God they see and the God they know and the God that they uh, uh, see out there and imagine out there is the way they see the world. And most of us adhere to either cat theology or dog theology. You've heard me talk about this before. But if you got a dog, the dog thinks, you feed me, you groom me, you care for me, you give me a bed, you give me a, a shelter, you walk me. You must be God. But if you have a cat, the cat thinks, you feed me, you shelter me, you groom me. you You give me a litter box. I must be god. And that's the way if you have a cat you know exactly what I'm talking about. And and that's the way we are so much. We make ourselves little g gods. On uh, April 8, 1966, this was the time magazine cover that week. 1966 is god dead. And it opened up just tons of discussions and conversations around the world it came from frederick nietzsche's the german philosopher's thought is that god is dead but nietzsche what he really said is god is dead and we killed him and he goes on with a philosophy in thinking that out in america though still we adhere that there is a god So the question isn't so much, is there a God, but what kind of God is he? The Apostles' Creed, right from the beginning, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And what my attempts are this morning, I want to show to you that the God of the Scriptures, as Matt Chandler said, which was a great thing, and I, I I'm not above stealing it. He said he is infinitely powerful and he is intensely personal. And that's where I want to go today. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn or, or your devices, turn with me to Psalm 139. I'm gonna read the whole chapter because I want you to, to be able to mark and and just see it. But Psalm 139 beginning with verse 1, talking about infinitely powerful and intensely personal. And David wrote this psalm. It says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, and I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. David wrote this incredible, beautiful psalm, and he deals with the fact that God is infinitely powerful and intensely personal. I want to begin with the infinitely powerful, just a minute. And notice right from the very first of, the, of Psalm 139, he says, Oh Lord, literally he is saying Yahweh, Yahweh. This is the God who showed up to Moses with a burning bush, Yahweh. That that word that the Jews would not even say. In fact, they just wrote it with consonants, Yahweh, it means God Almighty, I am, I, I, I am, and and uh, here's something interesting because in the Bible, in the scriptures, a Jew, a, a true Jewish person would not say the word Yahweh. It was too holy. It was it was uh, actually a breathing in, a breathing out, Yahweh. That's what they they looked at it, and uh, but so that they could write out. The the holy God, the authoritative God, they had another word for God, which was the word Adonai. And Jews, the Jewish scriptures are read from right to left, okay? And so when when they would write a word, they would the big letters would be the consonants, and the little what they called dots and tittles. You you've heard that before. Those actually are the vowels. And so what they did, so they could pronounce the word. They took the vowel markings from uh, Adonai and they added them to the consonants of Yahweh and they came up with the word Jehovah. So you see the words Jehovah Rapha and Jehovah uh, Sitkenu and the the different uh, Jehovah's, that word, they, they could say that word because they used the vowel markings of uh, Adonai and they added them. Word, Yahweh, you might could care less, I think that's pretty interesting uh, to to see that they they had that word and so the first of all the the infinitely powerful write down Yahweh because Yahweh means he's the deliverer who no one can uh, contain. He loses no power, he is all powerful he is, he is the one who holds history in his hand, He is the living God. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Moses, the God of David. He, he is, he, he's ageless. He is Yahweh. He is all authority. That's who he is. He is eternal and he never loses his power. The God of creation is still all powerful today. Nothing is greater than. You can, you can say, God greater than. God is greater than anything you are going through today. I promise you, God is greater. He is the authority. That's who Yahweh is. He is the deliverer. And so, number one, under infinitely powerful, He is Yahweh. Secondly, though, He's all-knowing. He is all-knowing. He, omniscient is the word we use. He is all knowing. Nothing is hidden from him. Notice as David talks, he's acquainted with all my ways. He, he sees them from afar. He, he sees when I sit down, when I rise up. He, he, and here's the deal. This one gets me. He not only sees the action, he sees the motive. You know, I'm a good guy, but I'm a good actor. Sometimes my motive is not in line with my action. Sometimes they're all blended together, and I don't like that at all. But he sees. God sees. God is, everything is under his eyes. He is all-knowing. He knows everything about everyone of his creations. In Matthew 10, 29, it says this, are, Jesus is speaking, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. God is all-knowing. There is nothing beyond his knowledge. He, he knows more than the Internet. He knows all of history from beginning to culmination. He is completely sovereign. He knows all. He's all-knowing. So he's Yahweh. He's all-knowing. Here's a third one. He's all-powerful. All-powerful. Notice David said in verse 5, He hems me in. He's, he's before me. He's behind me. He hems me in. He totally surrounds me. And what that lets me know is that nothing can get to me Unless he allows it. Nothing can get to me. Unless he allows it. He created all things. And all things are subject. To his authority. He is all powerful. And I want you to hear something. And and I, I hope this sticks. Because foundational for us. Is that there is one God. And he's the God of the scriptures. We have to handle that. But I want you to know something. There is a false teaching that seems to be out today, and and it's almost like the dark side and the force going towards one another. There's people, even Christian people, that think, oh, you've got God and you've got Satan. We've got these two authorities that are that are out there and they're going at it. I want you to know that Satan was a created being. He has no authority equal with God at all. And so you need to hang on to that, that God is completely in authority. Is he letting Satan, allowing Satan to do certain things? Yes, you're you're tempted. You, you're hit with certain things. But I, I'm telling you, it's not that the, Satan is on equal footing with God and they're having this clash. That's not it. That's a dualism that does not exist. God is God. He's completely all-powerful, all-authoritative. And I want you to grab that because so many people are thinking, oh, we've got the force and the dark side and whoever wins out. You know, I'm telling you, God wins out. He is all authoritative. He's all powerful. So he's Yahweh. He's all knowing. He's all powerful. One more. He's ever present. He's ever present. I love what David, he goes on to say. He says, if I ascend to heavens and the atmosphere, you were there. If I make my bed in shell, which is the place of the dead, burial. If I if I'm I can't go too high, I can't go too low. You were there. And then he says, if I take the wings of the morning, which means the sun rising. The sun rises in the east. And uh, he says, if I uh, dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, the sea, the Mediterranean was to the west. So you you've got. No matter how high I go, how low I go, how far I go to the right, far I go to the left, God is there. He is there. He is ever-present. He was there when I was conceived. He was there when I was put together in my mother's womb. There's no way I can escape his presence. And we try to do that all the time, and we just run right into it. He is ever-present. So he is the only God who is eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present. And it blows David's mind because in verse 6 he says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I cannot even wrap my brain around the size of God. He is infinitely powerful. I want you to grab that because we do not serve a God that's wringing his hands thinking, oh, oh, what am I going to do? I don't think I can handle it. I want you to know he is greater than. He is greater than. Sometimes we've given a way too small view of God. But not only is he infinitely powerful, He is intensely personal. First of all, he knit us together. He knit us together. Verse 14, David says this, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. In other words, God was there. He was there knitting you together in your mother's womb. He knew what you were going to be. He knew who you were going to be. He is He is the one that created you. And, and I know we get into this, there's no two snowflakes alike, and there's no two fingerprints that are alike. And those are true, but... Sometimes we, that snowflake thing, I I just don't, I I guess it's the man in me that just, I'm a little snowflake, I'm unique. I, I just can't, I can't go there, I can't go there. But I want you to know that when he made you, he broke the mold. There is not another you. I'm, I, I, I look at my grandkids, uh, uh, I look at, at uh, other people, and they resemble, they resemble their parents to a certain degree biologically, physically. But I'm telling you, God in his incredible way of doing things created you, and uh, he gave you a personality, he gave you certain uh, uh, passions and giftings and talents, he put those inside of you. Uh, yes, because of the fall, there's brokenness and there's confusion and there's questioning the identity. But he, but Jesus came to bring our identity back to who we were created to be. Amen. Amen. He brought us back to, uh, who we were created to be. And, and he has created you very unique and he loves you. He knit you together. He did not make a mistake. Secondly, under intensely personal, he knows our deepest thoughts. I want you to know what's hidden from man is visible to God. What you think is hidden, it's very visible. This not only shows his power, but it shows his deepest thoughts are not only knowing our thoughts, but his deepest thoughts are for us. You cannot run from him because he is there already. We try to do this all the time, especially when we feel guilty. We, we try to block God out, and I'm telling you, there's many people today that uh worshipped right where you're worshiping, and they're they're running from God today, and I want you to know they've run nowhere he's right there, he knows and he knows your deepest thoughts, he knows hear me, he knows your deepest hurt, he knows your deepest wounding right now, he knows. What you cannot bring yourself to talk to anybody else about because it's such a deep wound in your spirit, he knows it. He knows it. And what? He loves you anyway. Here's the third thing He, he watches over you. He keeps watch over you. he lovingly watches over you look at verse 17 again right quick David says this how precious to me are your thoughts oh God how vast is the sum of them if I would count them they are more than the sand I wake and you are still there I am still with you how precious to me are your thoughts and and, and I know we can read that, and, and the language is a little confusing. Is it David's thoughts that are towards God? I will tell you, when I read it, it's God's thoughts about me. And he is looking over me. He cares about me. He cares about you. He cares of what you're going through. He loves you immensely, and he is waiting on you. I love this. I wake, and I'm still with you. I love it because God doesn't sleep, and he doesn't lose power. He doesn't get exhausted like me and 9 o'clock turn into a pumpkin. He, he doesn't do that. When I wake up in the morning, he is waiting on me. Ah, oh, We have an incredible, intensely intimate God. There's one more. There's one more, and I'm going to jump ahead to the New Testament. When Jesus taught us to pray, or taught his disciples to pray, he started out by saying, Our Father who art in heaven. Our Father. He is Father. He is Father. This is an incredible, intimate title. Our Father. And I want you to hear this because this is very vital. We get our first thoughts about God from our earthly fathers. Do I say that as a guilt tactic for dads? Yeah. I mean, you represent God. To your children. They get their first images of God through you. Now, now what does that mean? Uh, we kick it up, but, but uh, that is a heavy thing. And what has happened is that many people, many of you in this room, have a skewed view of God because of your view of your earthly father. Many of you know my story. I've never called anybody dad in my life. Um, when I was 15 months old, my uh, my father passed away. Mom eventually remarried Jim. I called him Jim his whole life. They were married 50 years, but he was still Jim uh, to me. And so I never called anybody dad. And so uh, what, what that do, did is it created a... Uh, struggle for me on seeing the intensely personal side of God I knew he was creator I knew I I was sinful I knew I needed a savior I, I knew all those things but the intimate personal side I could not grasp because my view of fatherhood was was skewed and it it kept God at a distance it actually kept other people at a distance because I figure if you get in there and see what I'm really like, you're going to see a timid little boy in a man's uh, skin. And so that's that was a big struggle for me. And so I, I thought, God, are you going to leave me, you know, abandon me uh, or, or these kind of things? I'm not going to know how to do X, Y and Z. You know what I'm saying? Because uh, some of you struggle with that. Now, some of you had uh, dads that uh you could not uh you cannot stomach their they may have did something immoral or or they did um uh something harsh or they were mean or the distant or whatever you know you you struggle with that and it gives you a skewed view of god my wife on the other hand a year ago her, her father passed away that was the last of our parents to pass away and uh Man, it was a grievous time for her. She knows her dad's in the presence of the Lord, but she had her dad was sacrificial. He was protective. He loved. He was. He had a a soft side to him, as well as a a harder, manly side, for use of a better term. Uh, And so she uh, she struggled greatly, and she never question about God and his sacrificial loving protective kind of way and some of you have been blessed with that and it's been a a great thing but uh, I know that some of you uh, some of you have struggled and some of you are still trying to get your dad's pat on the back right um because you didn't get it and and your dad is dead and gone and you're still just wishing you could get that pat on the back. Um, I had a situation where a mom and Jim were coming to our house and uh, I'd gone and picked them up. This was later in life and they both had walkers at this time and and uh, I, I go and, and pick them up, bring them to the house. They're going to It's a Sunday, they're going to eat with us and everything, and I'm going to take them back, and um, uh, they come out, and like I say, they both have walkers, and uh, we had bushes at the time, and the bushes were hanging over a little bit on the uh, walkway, but uh, Jim bumps up against it, and he said, you're going to have to cut those bushes, and we kind of laugh, and And uh, go in and eat. I take them home. Monday was my day off. What do you think I did on Monday? Did they need it that bad? No. Because I wanted to pat them back. I just wanted to pat them back. I know some of you have struggled with that. There's two things I want to challenge you with. In this. First of all, some of you need to let your dad off the hook and forgive him. That's hard because, you know, it's not like my dad died on purpose. It's not like your dad was distant on purpose. It's not like he was bitter on purpose. Something happened. He was maybe modeling what your grandfather did. I don't know. But Some of you need to let your dad off the hook and put him on God's hook and just forgive him, knowing you're not going to get that pat on the back. But secondly, some of you need the revelation today that you are okay. You are okay. Despite what woundings you may have or you may have had, you're actually okay, and you have a heavenly Father who loves you dearly. Um, I was reading about golfer Greg Norman. Greg Norman in the 90s was really big golfer, and uh, he uh, was incredible. And, uh, but 1996, Greg Norman was playing the Masters, And he had, going into Sunday, he had a six-stroke lead on Nick Faldo. I mean, six strokes. A professional golfer in his sleep can almost win a a golf tournament with a six-stroke lead going into Sunday. He and Nick Faldo were paired up for that last day, and Greg Norman's wheels fell off. I mean, it was terrible. He uh, just hit shots that were terrible. He lost that six-stroke lead, and Faldo ended up by beating him several strokes. And uh, Greg Norman coming down the 18th green is thinking about the news that they're going to say they're going to eat him alive and all of those kind of things. So they come to the 18th hole, and uh, uh, Greg Norman put it out, and Faldo put it out, and Faldo won the Masters that year. But this picture was taken on the green at 18. And you don't see that in golf tournaments. Actually, what happened is Nick Faldo walked up to Greg Norman after he'd finished feeling so much for his brother. He said it I want to hug you. And they embraced. And Greg Norman said, you know, I lost a lot of tournaments and there was a lot that didn't go right in my career. He said, but that moment, that hug meant the world to me. I would never had anybody hug me like that. I want you to know that if you've blown a six-stroke lead, God still loves you. If you screwed up royally, God still loves you. If you're wounded and struggling with your identity and struggling with life, God still loves you. Notice what David said at the end. He said, search me, O God. Know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. God wants you to know me. I want you to bow your heads with me.